1948, the people in the British colony of Newfoundland faced a choice. They could become an independent dominion within the British Empire, or they could vote to join Canada in Confederation. The anti-Confederates are not going to get away with it. But St. John's was an anti-Confederate headquarters. Watch in particular the attractive bait which will be held out to lure our country into the Canadian mousetrap. Listen to the Stories Behind the History podcast for our special series, How Did Newfoundland Join Canada? Available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. So today, we are about to do something we have never done on this show. A Celine Dion episode. You know what? We should do that. I know. We are going to try and answer your questions. That's right. You, the listener. We have received so many questions. And so today is mailbag day. Have we actually gotten an actual piece of mail ever? I have not. No, me neither. (laughs) Okay, so good point. So today is email bag day, and we are going to look at Canadian cheese snacks, what might be the origins of the word Canuck, and how many Vancouverites can trace their ancestry back to one Portuguese dude. Okay, well, I'm excited. Let's get into it. Okay. Okay, our first email is from Andrea, and she writes... Please keep using the bell and buzzer in your episodes, especially the buzzer. It's just so effective. I would even endorse the use of different kinds of buzzers to indicate different kinds of disapproval. The possibilities are endless. Andy. Oh, I like that. I like Andy. This was a response to our episode on statues where we used buzzers to decide what Canadian statues should stay and which ones could go. So here is your buzzer and bell. After the case has been made, you will either ring the bell, right, which means the statues should stay up, or the buzzer, which means you think it should all come down. If you use them at the same time, yeah, 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 it means you are undecided, and I will help you make the case either way. Yeah, yes, that's, yes, you're going to do that, yes. Okay, okay, I completely regret this. Already stop doing this. <laughs> you gave me a problem. I did. I big did. mistake. That was a big problem. <laughs> that was fun. That was a, that was a yeah, good episode. That was I like that. Yeah, that was a fun one. Yeah. Okay, Andy, here's what I say. Wow, you're it's saying a, long a lot. sentence. <laughs> <laughs> you can just. <laughs> that is. That's great. And I agree. Let's go on to the next thing. All right. Can you name any famous Canadians from Vancouver? From Vancouver? Nah, I'm lost on that one, man. Who's from Vancouver? Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds. Duh. Finn Wolfhard. Stranger Things, right? If I could tell you that I know a famous Canadian from Vancouver, I'd be lying to you right now. But I know there's a lot more, and they're all pretty great and stuff, doing what they're doing. So it may sound like we're answering a question on Ryan Reynolds, but we we are not. Uh, Our next question is from a listener from Vancouver, B.C. 
Hey, Phelan and Leah. My name is Christine and I live on Coast Salish territory, also known as Vancouver. I just wanted to share a story with you from the West Coast that I'm really curious to know more about. Um, I think I first heard this from Deborah Sparrow, who's a Musqueam artist. And so apparently there was this guy named Portuguese Joe, who was one of the early settlers on the West Coast who came over from Portugal looking for gold. And he fell in love with the granddaughter of Grand Chief Capilano and married her. And Apparently, he's got a big legacy because a statue of him was recently put up in Stanley Park. And I would love to know more about this dude and the women that he was married to because apparently they have over 500 descendants uh, who are of Indigenous and Portuguese descent. And uh, I want to know more about that story. I had never heard of this guy. And he has 500 descendants. It seems like I should know about him. I know. I had never either. But fear not, Christine. I found the one book on Portuguese Joe, which I now own, called The Remarkable Adventures of Portuguese Joe Sylvie by Jean Barman. This is the weird side effect of working on this show. You just own 100 books about one or two people that no one's ever heard of. And it's, yeah. it's I have a weird book collection now. I think mostly for me, it's like my browser history is very odd. Right. Historically wise. <laughs> oh, clever. <sighs> That's all I'll say. Okay, so what did this book tell you about this guy? Well, his life and the lives of the indigenous women he married really taught me a lot about BC and Vancouver. He was really famous in his time and spoiler, he was Portuguese. Whoa. <laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> I know, right? Okay, so Joseph Sylvie was born Jose Silva in the Azores around 1830. So the Azores are a group of Portuguese islands. Really beautiful. He grew up in a fishing community, and the people there mostly concentrated on whaling, which was a really difficult and terrible profession, really, at the time. Right. So, and at this time, whale oil was used for a lot of things, including right. uh, lighting of lamps, because a lot of people didn't have electricity yet. Mm -hmm. But it was also used for things like soap and like paint and even margarine. So it was a huge product, but a really brutal industry. Yeah, mostly for the whales. And when Joe ended up on a ship that docked on the west coast of North America, he and five other guys slipped away as life in the Azores at this time was really hard and there was not a lot of opportunity. They eventually end up in BC. This was during the gold rush. So everybody was, you know, right. let's find our millions. Mm -hmm. And Joe and the other men decide to head out in search for it. They get in a boat to travel up the Fraser River. This was despite the fact that all the other gold miners warned them about the indigenous people. They said, just don't go there. They're violent, not open to strangers. But if I were a gold miner and someone told me, don't go up that river because something bad will happen, I'd be like, yeah, but you're a gold miner too. And there's probably a lot of gold over there. Right. And you just don't want me to go and get Throwing that. Throwing you anyway. off the trail, yeah, you exactly. would think. Okay. Yeah. Well, right. Well, they didn't listen to these guys either because right. they probably thought that. But then when they actually ran into the Musqueam people, Joe and the other men freaked out and tried to turn the boat around. But the people were like, hey, hi, do you speak Hoka, ma'am? I don't know what you're saying. Does anyone understand these guys? Okay, okay, none of us can understand you. Hey, calm down. Stop screaming. You want something to eat? I mean, it's up to you. But you guys look terrible. Nice. Thank I you. I felt like I was there. Thank you. I felt like I was I would there. Just like to, I would like to apologize. <laughs> 
<laughs> to, to all of the Musqueam people. <laughs> We're going to get like, letters. That's We're what, definitely that's getting my, letters. That's the res accent from where I'm from. I know you probably do it different on the West Coast. Maybe not. Anyway, Such an appropriation. We will talk. <laughs> um, so, yeah, after that, they stayed. They were like, these are cool people. And they met the Grand Chief of the Squamish, Chief Capilano. He's a pretty big deal. He was actually there visiting his mother's people who were Musqueam. And just a side note, this area on the West Coast is uh, inhabited by many nations, and sometimes they fall under this large banner called Coast Salish. British Columbia, Washington, and Oregon have more than 60 nations, and the Musqueam and the Squamish are just two of those nations. Yeah, that's right. And while Joe was with the Musqueam, he and Chief Capilano, who, remember, was the Grand Chief of the Squamish, They hit it off, and eventually Joe and the other Portuguese men decided to head back to Victoria. But Joe was just into the whole vibe of the Musqueam, and he decided to go back to the area, set up a little store just to sell supplies to gold miners. It's at this time everyone starts calling him Portuguese Joe because he's one of the only Portuguese in the area. I do feel like they probably could have just called him Joe, though, because... because Yeah, nobody else was called Musqueam Joe. Joe. Yeah. (laughs) No, no, not you, Musqueam Joe. (laughs) Portuguese Joe. Exactly. Yeah. So while he was in the area now, he starts up a relationship with Chief Capilano's granddaughter, Coltonot. Joe's marriages and his children are the most important reason we are talking about him. Actually, no offense to Joe, but the women's stories are way more interesting. These women that we're going to talk about, they tell the story of the big changes that happen for Indigenous women and their children in B.C. and Canada. And to me, they also really remind us that women at this time had it hard. I mean, hard. If you listen to the last episode on the Indian Act. That's how we thought about the Indian Act. Yeah, you'll remember how much it affected and still affects women and their children in Canada women who are Indigenous. That's right. So Joe had two Indigenous wives, the first being Coltonat. Now, she was not only the granddaughter of Chief Capilano, who was a big deal, but she was also the niece of a chief of one of the largest villages at the time, Suezwe. So she was well-connected. It would be like marrying Malia Obama. Oh, yeah. She was definitely a Malia Obama. Actually, Coltonat and Malia... Get a bell. Okay, that was the wrong kind of bell, but you get it. It was it's supposed to be celebratory. Oh, yeah, go back to school. <laughs> <laughs> so when Joe and Coltonot got married in 1862, they had a marriage that was traditional to her people, the Musqueam and the Squamish. They had a lot of festivities for the wedding and a potlatch. So a potlatch is a ceremony, and it's different depending on which coastal nation you're in. Um, But it's held for important occasions like a wedding or a death or a naming, and it might last for days. It can include dancing and singing and feasting. And his marriage to Coltonot was the bridge between Joe and the people in this area. She spoke the languages. She knew the people. I mean, she really helped Joe as he was fishing and sailing around the coast, which he did a lot. This is why he became so well known. He seemed, by all accounts, a really social guy. They had two little girls, one of whom was named Elizabeth, and she remembers going to the potlatch with her mother's people. And so this obviously would have been before the government of Canada banned the potlatch for 67 years. Yeah. That's for Canada. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not for all time, but... In this this instance. Yeah. But people still would have been trying to practice the ceremony. But if they did, they they could face charges. And it was seen as, at the time, being anti-Christian. So it was banned from 1884 until 1951. And 
for a bit of context here, uh, that was the same year that I Love Lucy, old black and white show, mm-hmm. premiered on TV. Yeah, and I mean, side note, Lucille Ball, who was in that show, that's why it's called I Love Lucy. She was a comedian, a writer, one of the best, big trailblazer producer. She became one of the first women to run a major television studio, which produced the original Star Trek. I didn't know that. The more you know. Yeah, with William Shatner. Yeah, it was on TV. See, it's ties to Canada. Yes, William Shatner's Canadian. Bringing them back. <laughs> Stratford trained. Yes. Um, and for the kids or people who don't know what a TV is, you can Google it. It's a thing that people used to watch. Okay, where were we? Okay, well, uh, the government had banned the potlatch. Kind of about 20 years before the government bans the potlatch, Coltonat is taking her daughter to them. And in this period, it's in the 1860s, that Joe would become one of the first Portuguese men in what would be Canada to get British citizenship, which meant he could vote and buy land. So he applies to start a fishery near where he was living at Burrard Inlet, which is now West Vancouver. He wanted to get 20 acres on the government reserve near the south shore of Brockton Point. Well, the government said no and decided to keep the land for itself. That's what the government gets yeah. for keeping land that it never <laughs> really Even though it wasn't theirs in the first place. It wasn't theirs. No, yeah, it wasn't. Exactly. They named the whole thing Stanley Park, oh. the now famous Vancouver Park, which is a thousand acres and really beautiful. Can you imagine if he had gotten that land approved by the government, he would be a cajillionaire. But no, he doesn't get it. So he goes back to whaling and then decides maybe I'll open a business in Gastown. Right. Gastown was Vancouver's first downtown area. It's now a a historical district and is named after Gassy Jack Dayton, who is an English guy who opened up the area's first saloon. He's important to mention because he does meet up with Mm -hmm. Portuguese Joe, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Joe and Coltonet settle basically in Gastown and Gassy Jack was a really important figure. I mean, the place is literally named after this guy. And, you know, he's named Gassy for not the reason that he is, (laughs) because I assume that too. He just talked a lot. He was a windbag, and so they called him Gassy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my brain did not go there. Mine didn't either. So Gassy wasn't the only gross thing about Gassy Jack. (laughs) He also, um, after his first wife died, paid to marry her 12-year-old niece, Uhalia. Okay, so he's going to keep that one rolling for a while. Several of these. Just, it's unfortunate that this guy still has a big old statue in the heart of Vancouver. And since everyone was creeped out by it, because even then it was creepy. Yeah. Like, that says something. If you're creeping people out at this time, <laughs> you're doing something real creepy. <laughs> so what he did is he bought a house in the woods. Not creepy enough for you? Yeah, he bought a house in the woods so people wouldn't see him and his 12-year-old child bride together. Oh, man. Well, poor Uhalia, she lived with him for three years. Eventually, she managed to escape at age 15 and lived until the ripe old age of 90, a real survivor who gets a bell. Yes, Yes. a bell. Yes. Because, come on, she did an amazing thing to just outlive that. Okay, several bells. Yeah. And there are many indigenous women's groups in Vancouver who really want some recognition for Uhalia. There's a statue for gross pervert gas hat jack in the middle of Gaston, but there's no mention of Uhalia. Yeah, so it was quite typical of this time period, unfortunately. And so when Joe and Coltonot 
came into Gastown. They saw Gassy Jack's saloon and decided to open a competing saloon that Joe named Hole in the Wall. In 1948, the people in the British colony of Newfoundland faced a choice. They could become an independent dominion within the British Empire, or they could vote to join Canada in Confederation. The anti-Confederates are not going to get away with it. But St. John's was an anti-Confederate headquarters. Watch in particular the attractive bait which will be held out to lure our country into the Canadian mousetrap. Listen to the Stories Behind the History podcast for our special series, How Did Newfoundland Join Canada? Available now wherever you get your podcasts. So this was quite the time, right? We're starting to see the foundations of Vancouver being laid. And it was really diverse, kind of like it is today. There was a lot of intermarriage going on between European men and Indigenous women and a lot of marriages between Indigenous nations. So you would be hearing a lot of languages, including Hawaiian. There's actually um, a pretty rich Hawaiian history. I did not know that. Yeah, it's really interesting. So many Hawaiians had ended up traveling and working for explorers and just like Portuguese Joe, when they reached the West Coast, they took off. Many of them worked for the Hudson's Bay. And these indigenous Hawaiian men married women from coastal nations, including from the Kwantlen Nation, and passed along the Hawaiian language and traditions to their children. In the 1830s on the West Coast, the Bay employed more Hawaiian Canadians, or Hawaiians as they would have been at this time, than any other racialized group. And in 1851, half the working age population in Fort Victoria were Native Hawaiians. They were called the Kanakas, and the term Kanaka is looked on as offensive to some, but it's still used by others, as these Pacific Islanders settled all over the world. Right, so it kind of depends on where you where you are. are. Right, yeah. right. In Canada, the biggest settlement was on Salt Spring Island in an area named after them called Kanaka Creek. It's a community and a body of water, and their descendants can still be found in BC today. Actually, quite a few members of BC's population have Hawaiian ancestry. Who knew? Huh. Yeah, I heard some even say that they inspired the now Canadian nickname Kanak. So uh-huh. that is the Hawaiian connection. But okay, let's get let's back get, to Joe. <laughs> let's get back to Joe and Coltonot. And we were talking about them being in Gastown, and so they're now living in Gastown. This place had so much going on, you know, tons of new people, like you've just explained, and indigenous nations that are at the cusp of the government starting to implement assimilation, and then tragedy strikes. What happened? Coltonot gets really sick after the birth of her second little girl, and she dies. Joe is devastated. He sells the saloon and moves to be near her people. That's really nice that he moves close to her people. Yeah. But he has 500 descendants, so I'm assuming he shacks up with someone else. <laughs> yes. Failing, he had a second wife. Okay. Um, he got married pretty soon after, as one did in those days. You know, he had two daughters, age four, and with another, a barely a year old, he needed some help. So he married Quatlamat, a seashell woman, or should I say girl? Oh, God, no. Is this another, like, Cabin in the Woods story? Um. Well, not exactly. Mm, are we going to buzz Joe? Well, she was 15. He was 38. Oh. So, yes, we are going to have to buzz I was just, Joe. I was just starting and you to know like what? him. Just a second like buzz. A of, yeah. Just a second I had buzz. a soft spot there I, for a second. You know. I'm hardened again. Um, <laughs> I know for anyone thinking, you know, wow, things are really messed up in this time period. 
Let me clarify a couple things for you, Canada, and tell you that child marriage is still legal in this country today. Canada's Federal Civil Marriage Act sets the minimum age for marriage at 16. Most provinces require parental consent for people younger than 18, but the age is 16. So Canada has approved at least 3,382 child marriages since the year 2000. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. And those are only the ones that are in the books. Mm -hmm. The majority of the marriages are still young girls being married off to old dudes. So remember, when you see those commercials about child marriage happening in a so-called third world country, it's happening here, too. That's right. Yeah. Uh, So Quatlamat and Joe got married in 1872. So this was about like 10 or 15 years after the first marriage. Mm -hmm. And did they... Did they have a similar ceremonial wedding? No, not at all. When he married Kaltanat, you'll remember, they married in her tradition. They had a potlatch with her people. When he married Kwatlamat, they had the ceremony in a Catholic church. Times had really changed already, you know, just 10 years, but classifications were being put into law, women were losing status, and many of the children of these intermarriages were being scorned, and they were often referred to by the derogatory term half-breed. All of Joe's and Quatlamat's children would be baptized in the church. They had nine children in total. And what about Coltonat's girls? What, what, what happened to them? Well, they were there too. You know, the older one, Elizabeth, you know, she remembered her mother bringing her to ceremony. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth had a really hard life. First of all, she was kidnapped when she was 16. And then she was forced to marry a 19-year-old guy by the name of James Walker, whose father was an American gold miner and mother was Cowichan. So the Cowichan are BC's largest First Nations community, and their traditional knitting is so recognizable. You, If you Google it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. It's the thick sort of wool-looking sweater. Um, lots Usually of like gray and black. Or, or like brown and cream brown colored. And cream, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you may have one in your closet right now. And if you've ever been to Vancouver or probably any kind of trading post in Canada, you've seen a Cowichan-style sweater. There are a lot of stores that rip them off, too. Mm-hmm. So make oh, sure yeah. you're getting an authentic Yeah, one. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, We'll actually link to what they look like in our blog. Now back to Elizabeth. So she gets kidnapped, unfortunately, and forced to marry this James Walker guy. You know, Joe finds out and he tries to stop it, but it's too late. The weddings already happen. Elizabeth has a baby every year until she was 20 and then six more after that. She finally managed to get away from him two decades later and described her life as being a slave to her husband. Oh, God, that's awful. It's terrible. Well into her old age, she actually tried to rekindle relationships with the Musqueam and the Squamish people when she was living by herself. But it seems she might have been trying to get her status back. But unfortunately, she was turned away by some of the people who thought she considered herself white. Oh, God, that's so sad. Mm -hmm. And like an unfortunate reality that still many Indigenous people face today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she eventually was able to bridge some of those relationships, but Coltonot's other daughter was really too young to even remember her and considered herself Portuguese. She actually thought both of her parents were Portuguese. For some, it was easier to choose the Portuguese side at the time, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, it was a different time, probably. And, you know, from Joe's marriage to Coltonot and Quatlamat, he had six sons and four daughters. And after that, 70 grandchildren and so on and so on and so on. 
So that's why there are 500 descendants of Portuguese Joe. Oh, yeah. And Joe and his sons bought a lot of land on Reed Island. And the Sylvies lived there for generations, fishing and working. And all these years later, the coastal ways of being with the water is still in their blood. So in 2015, Joe's great-great-grandson, one of the 500 descendants, he's mm-hmm. a Coast Salish carver named Luke Marston, and he created a monument to honor both his Coast Salish and Portuguese ancestors. It's called Shore to Shore, and it took him five years to complete. So it shows Portuguese Joe and Coltanat and Quatlamat, a beautiful carving that is symbolic of both these women's traditions and the Portuguese culture. So, Christine, I hope that answers your question for you. Portuguese Joe was really interesting, but if it weren't for the women in his family, he would have no great-grandson to even make that carving. Am I right? And so that's how long it takes us to answer one question. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> there are no short answers. It's so, history, y'all. I know. I think we, we, can, we can do one more. Okay, one more. Okay. Do you like cheesies? What, uh, the chips? Yeah, I like the Chester Cheeto ones. Yeah, yeah, well, not those ones. Those are the worst. <laughs> I thought you meant, like, Cheetos. What's there not to like about Cheezies? Love. That one specifically, I don't like the Cheetos. The Cheezies, I think, are, like, they're more crunchy and they're harder. They're a little bit smaller. So if you're looking for something a little bit more dense than the Cheetos, I'd go for that. Did you know that Cheezies are Canadian? I didn't, actually. I figured it would have been American because, like, the packaging is very patriotic. Okay, so the last uh, comment we're going to get to okay, today. Okay, well, I would say it's a grievance. Our last piece of mail, but first grievance, yeah. is from a Yukon listener by the name of Peter who was very upset about our snacks episode and had this to say. I subscribed recently to your podcast, and I must say that I love it. However... Your credibility went down the drain when you did the episode about snacks. You completely left Cheezies out of the episode. Cheezies is quintessentially Canadian. P.S. The Caesar is not a snack. (laughs) Peter, when I used to bartend, I lived off the food that went into Caesars, okay? Celery and olives sustain me, so the Caesar to me is definitely a snack. Oh, yeah. It's got, like, food. I've seen people have, oh, yeah. like, they put barbecue sauce and We talked shrimp. about this in the snacks episode. There's, like, a burger attached to it. There's a piece of fried chicken, <laughs> a pepperoni stick, like, a pepperoncini. You know, you, there's, yeah. like, there's, like, a sundae. Like, Come it's, on. they're disgusting. Like, that's gross. But, Definitely. no, it's just, it's like a gazpacho with vodka. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so what's really interesting is most people were upset that we left Nanaimo bars out of the episode. Peter was the only one to email us about cheese. And listen, Nanaimo, get your panties out of a bunch because I emailed people. I emailed the Nanaimo Festival and nobody got back to me. So, right? Mm-hmm. Get back to us or you're going to be left out of Canadian right, history. Yeah. <laughs> Which is really hard for a lot of the dead people that we cover, you know? Mm-hmm. So email us from heaven. Okay, so that sounds like a Fox series. (laughs) Yeah, man, respond to your emails, people. Now, here is how cheesies are made. They were invented by a farmer by the name of James Marker and a confectioner by the name of W.T. 
Hawkins. Those are people who make candy. Yeah, I know. It's like confectioner. Yeah, it's an old-timey word. It was shortly after World War II, and they were both living in Chicago. They figured out how to extract cornmeal and put it into different castings that would shape it into these little kind of curly finger shapes. Then they threw all of that into a deep fryer. And when they were done frying the little kind of turd-like shapes, they sprinkled the fried pieces with cheese. Okay, so you fry it. Yep. You cheese it. That's right. Very logical. (laughs) You eat it. These two men eventually decided to set up shop in Canada in 1949 and opened a plant in Tweed, Ontario, to take advantage of the rail lines because, you know, they were moving from Toronto to Montreal. Business boomed. Then a fire burnt down the factory in 1956, so they made a move to present-day location in Belleville, Ontario. Right. The most amazing thing about this story is that the plant still uses James Marker's original machine to manufacture cheesies at the company's plant. I mean, that's amazing. It just drives home the the fact that every modern thing that we own is made like crap because it all breaks down almost immediately. Yeah, and the cheesy machine never needs to be updated. Right? So this company is still family-owned and small. They won't sell to other large companies that have wanted to take them over. The employees, get this, don't work Friday afternoons or weekends. And they don't advertise at this company because they don't want to get any bigger and have to do more work. Hmm. That's They want to increase production. Yeah. They're very livable you know, work-life balance at the Cheesy Company. We, so we need to support Cheesies more. And I I think we should get some right now. I know, but not too many because then they would have to work more. I think one bag, if we all collectively across Canada buy one bag every couple weeks, once once a month maybe, that should do it. So thank you, Cheesies and Peter, even though your letter was a bit crusty. Yep, Peter. So this is the... The email bag yeah, show. And, and we didn't get to as many as we wanted to. But again, it takes you know, time. Man. It does. It, it takes, takes a lot of time. Yeah. But keep sending your letters in. Please do. Keep uh, yeah, letters, Emailing physical us. letters. <laughs> I see your tweets. Yes. We read all yeah, the tweets. We do. We read all they the mean a lot. Facebook posts. We love hearing from you. We print all of them off and we keep them in a handbook. And we read them. No, I'm just joking. Yeah, I know. Mail us at CBC Podcast, Care of Secret Life of Canada, at P.O. Box 500, Station A, Toronto, Ontario, M5W 1E6. I'm oh so my excited. God. I hope it, uh, we're going to open it and a moth will fly out. <laughs> <laughs> I can only hope so. Or it'll be a, a note from Peter. <laughs> he'll be very disappointed in me. <laughs> The Secret Life of Canada is recorded in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. It's written and hosted by me, Leah Simone Bowen. And me, Phelan Johnson. And produced by Katie Jensen. Our, Our script, script editor, editor is, is Yvette Nolan. Nolan. Look at us. <laughs> Research assistant is provided by John Weir. Special thanks to Kelsey Cueva and the folks from the CBC Archives. Our digital producer is Fabiola Carletti. The senior producer of CBC Podcasts is Tanya Springer, and the executive producer is Arif Narani. Join us on our Facebook group. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You know all the places yeah, mail you can us find on, us. Mail, mail us, us something. And you know, if there's a story you want to hear, like we said, get in contact with us at secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca, and we'll answer you in about two years' time. <laughs> yeah, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for exploring Canada's hidden history with us. And remember... Pass it on.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.